Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me there. John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. We're reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Uh, It's one of those translations where I I feel like it's, it's more readable at times. And so I I enjoy looking at it from time to time, and I really uh, love the way that it uh, expressed these verses. So we're reading here John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. It says, because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we have heard your word, we pray uh, that it truly would be life for us. I pray that your spirit would work to bring about conviction where we need it, encouragement where we need it, comfort peace where we need it, life and refreshment in those places where we need it. I pray that my words would honor and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. So we've read over the past couple of weeks in John chapter 2 about miraculous signs that Jesus had performed. First, uh, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus performed a miraculous sign of turning water into wine. It revealed who he was as, as the Messiah, as the Christ. His disciples saw that. They began to grow in their belief and their trust in him. Uh, then Jesus goes from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And the first sign that we read about him doing there is not a miraculous sign, but it's a sign that reveals who he is. He enters into the temple. He, he clears out all of the money changers, all the people who are selling stuff. And he says, you know, this this should be a house of prayer. You know, my house would be a house of prayer. It's a sign that reveals who he was. Now, John chapter 2 doesn't tell us about any of the other signs that he did in Jerusalem, uh, but he must have been performing other signs during the Passover festival because it tells us that he did so many, in fact, that people began to trust in him. So Jesus was going about Jerusalem performing miraculous signs, and the people began to trust in him. But it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to them. It says that Jesus wouldn't trust them because he knows human nature, because he knew what was in each person's heart. Now, as we look at this passage, it could be interesting to think about what it might mean for Jesus not to entrust himself to people, which could lead into conversations about why Jesus came to earth, what his mission was as the Messiah, what the expectations of the people were for a Messiah and how they kind of missed the mark, they missed the target, and how sometimes we, you know, in our expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus is supposed to do, we might miss Jesus's actual mission. But as I've been reading over this the past, you know, several weeks, really as we've been starting in the the Gospel of John together, this last line about Jesus Knowing what was in each person's heart has has really grabbed my attention. It says that Jesus would not entrust himself to the people because he knew what was in each person's heart. And it kind of makes you wonder, what is it 
that's in each person's heart. What is in a person's heart that would make it so that Jesus would not entrust himself to them? What is it in human nature that Jesus didn't trust? You know, it's a rather commonplace uh, assumption these days that, that basically all people are good at heart. Really, basically, all people are good. You kind of hear that. That's whether it's just kind of general conversation, whatever you're watching on TV, just the, the cultural idea of what it is to be human is we're all basically good. Now, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes, but most people are good and do good. At least that's the assumption we work with. And people who aren't good, people who do bad things or people who do really bad things are considered really just products of their environment. If they would have grown up differently, uh, if, if they would have grown up in a different place, a different school, a different setting, under different circumstances, they probably would have been a really good person also. I believe it was Anne Frank who said in her diary, right, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. Which, when you think about it, I mean, if you know the story of Anne Frank, uh, you know, Jewish girl who uh, is writing in this diary, they're hiding so that they're not taken away uh, during the Holocaust. Eventually she does, and uh, she doesn't make it, but they find this diary. I mean, it would have to take a lot to believe in the goodness of humanity to make that kind of statement after experiencing some of the things that she did. I can imagine for some of us, after some of the things that we've gone through in life, some of the things that we've seen, it has to take a lot to hold on to some kind of belief like that. Right, the, the atrocities that we see in the world around us. I mean, how many wars are ongoing that, that we're told about? And then how many other kind of violent acts are taking place in other places? Uh, how much uh, of a general level of corruptness do we see existing in the world around us? Yet, with all of this, many people, even Christians, operate with the idea that most people are basically good. And Christian thought in particular, the idea that people are basically good dates back to the fourth century. And this is kind of our, this will be our seminary moment, right? I mean, this is, we're, we're training, we're getting our theological roots in here. Uh, the, the idea that people are basically good dates back to the fourth century to a British monk named Pelagius. And part of his teaching is that human will has the power and freedom to choose goodness and holiness on his own. Pelagius taught that humans were born good. That even though it was possible to sin, it was not possible to lose that basic human nature of goodness. But, there's a, there's a big but here. If people are born basically good, if we're all basically good at heart, then why wouldn't Jesus entrust himself to people? It, why, if we're all basically good at heart, and we can choose to do what's good all on our own, why did Jesus even need to come? Why did Jesus need to go through the suffering and torture that he went through? Why was he nailed to a cross, crucified for our sins, if we're all basically good at heart? To make a long story short, what Pelagius taught, that all people are basically good, uh, has been condemned as heresy by the church, on and on and on, dating back to the 4th century. Uh, the church, through many councils and debates, determined that this view of humanity was inconsistent with Scripture. 
What the Bible teaches instead is that though in creation God made human beings in his image and God said that it was good, that people sinned against God in a way that had a corrupting influence on all generations to come. Because of Adam and Eve's sin against God, all who have followed have been born into sin. That's part of our nature. That becomes a part of who we are. It's something that's ingrained within us. Romans 5.12 says it this way. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. This scripture speaks to kind of that condition that we find ourselves in. That once sin entered into the world, that, that all who have followed have participated in it. It speaks to that primal desire, tendency within us to continue to sin. This, this characteristic of all human beings, of all people, that there's a universality to human sinfulness. Whether you're here in Port Charlotte, if you were to take a trip out to California, uh, go down to Rio de Janeiro, and not the one in Deep Creek, but in Brazil. I mean, if you travel over uh, to Japan or the Middle East, Europe, Africa, no matter where you go, if you go to Antarctica and you find people there, right, you will find it to be true that our natures are bent towards sin. When it comes to the nature of our hearts and whether we are basically good at heart, uh, the Bible has this to say. It's Jeremiah seventeen nine. It says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Now, I, I get it. This can be, you know, some difficult news if we're called up and thinking that everybody's basically good to see, wait, hold on, Scripture tells me something different. It, it can be a difficult adjustment, but it's an important one. Because if we don't realize the reality of this, then we miss out on the actual transforming work that God wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. Because what the Bible teaches is not that we are all basically good at heart, but that instead we all need a change of heart. That what God wants to do within us is to change our very heart. Not just to, to change and adjust some things on the outside, to make us look pretty and clean, but to change the very way that we approach life, to change us from the inside so that our nature, so that our will, so that our desires are different. That's the work that God wants to do within us. In the book of Ezekiel, God is speaking through the prophet, and he's talking about the work that he wants to do to renew the people of Israel. The people had forgotten about God uh, they had been taken away into exile, so they were no longer living in their homelands, and they felt as though they were without hope. But God didn't give up on them. God continued to pursue them, and God was reaching out to them and inviting them into something new. And so the prophet Ezekiel is telling them this vision that God has for them. It's in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24, he says, For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey 
my regulations. Now what this passage is kind of talking about really is the difference between uh, what we might call behavior modification and spiritual transformation. Right, Behavior modification is just this initial cleaning up the outside, which God says needs to be done. The outside needs to be cleaned, right? There's, there's dirt that's there, but that outside's just going to get dirty again, right? Uh, it's behavior modification is here's the list of rules that I'm supposed to follow over here. And so I'm just going to do my best by myself to follow this list of rules because, because I can do good. I can be good. I'm a good person. So I'm going to follow all of the right rules. God says that's not enough. That's not enough. You're not going to be able to follow them all, all the time. We're never going to be able to quite do all the things to earn our way into salvation. We're not going to be able to do all the things to be considered really a good person. So what God says instead is, yeah, I'm going to wash you up, but then I'm going to do some heart surgery. I'm going to come in and I'm going to take your old heart, the the stony heart, the stubborn heart, Uh, The heart that is resistant to me and to who I am and to who I've created and called you to be. I'm going to give you a new heart, a a heart of flesh, a heart that is tender, a heart that's responsive, a heart that's ready to listen and follow as I give you direction within your life, a heart that's ready to follow on the path that I have for you. God is saying, I'm not just going to clean up the outside, but I'm going to put something new within you. I mean, this is why Jesus could not entrust himself to the people, because he knew that their hearts weren't ready for transformation. As Jewish people, as people of Israel, they they were used to having rules to follow, rules and what what was good and what was not good and what they should do and shouldn't do for all times and all places. There were rules on top of rules and rules about how you're supposed to read and interpret those rules. They had all of the rules they could have. And so whenever they see Jesus come along, it's, it's almost like there's this attempt to say, okay, what's the new set of rules that we're supposed to follow? Uh, okay, I see that there's this way in which my behavior needs to change. So Jesus, what's this new set of rules? Jesus says, that's not what I'm after. It's not a new set of rules to follow. Rather, it's entering into a relationship with me where you're not just trying to be good all by yourself, but you're allowing me to do a transforming work within your heart and within your life, you're allowing me to enter in and to truly live and take up residence within your life. So there's a time in Matthew 15 where where it kind of explores us a little bit. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are going about their day, their business, and some of the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, they were the ones who, you know, well, at least they thought they followed all the rules. Uh, they also made a whole bunch of other rules that needed to be followed. And uh, and everybody who didn't follow the rules that they had just weren't as good as what they were. Maybe if those people had more education, right? Or maybe if those people grew up in a different scenario, they would be as good as the Pharisees. Well, they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, why are your disciples not following all the rules? They say, well, well what rule are we talking about? Well, they're not washing their hands before they eat. Which, you know, don't get me wrong. You should wash your hands before you eat. But I don't think that washing your hands has really much to do with your relationship with God. I don't think washing your hands is this rule above all rules that makes you a holy person. It's a good practice. I, ho- I hope you guys wash your hands before you eat. But it doesn't have anything to do with having a heart after God. 
And so Jesus responds to them. He points out how they've distorted the rules, how they use all these other rules they've created to just build up their own gain, to build up their own sense of self-importance. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. It says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is in vain, for they teach human rules as commands from God. Jesus is saying it's not about just following this set of rules or that set of rules or whatever. It's not about thinking that you can be good enough on your own, that if you just follow the right way, Jesus is saying the way is through me. The way is to be in connection and relationship with me. The, the way is to have an encounter with me, that, that there's an ongoing transformational work that needs to occur, that there's not even a point of being a one and done and I've, I've got it all cleared out, I've washed up and so now I'm good. It's saying that there's this ongoing process of transformation that has to occur in my life as I walk with Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what it means to be a disciple. It's not to say yes to Jesus one day, but it's to say yes to Jesus today and then tomorrow say yes to Jesus and then the next day say yes to Jesus and the next day say, yes, Lord, where are you calling me today? How are you inviting me today? What part of my life are you working in today? Where, uh, where God, am I, am I hiding you know, the, the dirt in the corners that you want to come and sweep out today? Who are you inviting me to serve today? Uh, who are you calling me to love today? Who are you calling me to share your good news with today? It's a daily, ongoing, transformational walk with him. Jesus would entrust himself to the people because he knew their hearts. He knew that they needed this transformation that comes to an encounter with him, he knew that they needed an ongoing transformation within their life. He knew that they needed to be able to walk with him day after day after day. It could be a challenging thing for uh, us. Now, I'm, I'm in the, uh, I guess, the microwave generation. I don't know about everybody here, but, I mean, microwave was standard in my house, right? You don't have to go through all the hassle, all the trouble. I, I stick it in, uh, put it on for two minutes, and boom, I've got... You know, boiling water, I've got whatever I need, it's all ready and done. Uh, I mean, our, our kind of, you know, diet fad generation, right? Where I, you know, I, I started my diet a week later, why am I not seeing results yet? Isn't there a pill I can take for this, you know? It, it's hard to think that this is going to be a journey sometimes. But it's a journey that's good. It's a journey that God calls us on as we walk together with Jesus it's what Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is describing an ongoing process of renewal and transformation. There's this repeated offering of ourselves to God that allows this ongoing process of transformation to occur. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind isn't a one-time deal. It's an ongoing process of submission to Jesus. An ongoing practice of surrendering ourselves once again to the God who has made us. The God who loves us, the God who sustains us, who longs to make us new. This transformation of our hearts and lives, I mean, it's, 
That's really the essence of, uh, of what it means to be Wesleyan and Methodist, to, to follow in that Christian tradition. A, a big part of, you know, why I long to be Methodist, why, why I'm Wesleyan, why this is my home and this particular denomination is because there's an emphasis on this ongoing transformational work that God does within us. Uh, one of the theological terms that we use is called sanctification. It's this process by where uh, we're allowing God to come in and, and make us new day after day to make us holy, where we're inviting him by his grace to, to change us, to shape us, to mold us, to say, you know what, I'm, uh, you're the potter and I'm the clay. Come and mold me and make me to have your own way. I mean, that's a part of what it means. And Wesley recognized this need for transformation that exists. He recognized that that following Christ was not a one and done. And so he began to gather people together in ways that would help them pursue ongoing transformation. Uh, Wesley knew the nature of our hearts. Scriptures that this was a necessary thing, and so he began to gather people in in small groups. Uh, they called them class meetings uh, during his day. But the focus of this class meeting wasn't so that you gain a new set of rules to follow. But it was rather focused on how we live out New Testament Christianity through principles of personal growth within the context of intimate fellowship, uh, accountability for spiritual stewardship, right where where we know each other well enough to where I can share something that's taking place in my life and you can say, you know what, Denville, I, I think you might have that wrong. <laughs> and, and rather than being defensive and getting offended, we've created this kind of connection, this relationship together where I can say, you know what, I, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, what, what are you seeing in me? Uh, what, what might God be saying through you that I need to hear in this moment? It's having that kind of connection, that kind of commitment to one another and to following Christ together, that we allow people to speak into our lives. These groups were in place so that we could bear one another's burdens, so that we could speak the truth in love. And Wesley made this observation. This is one of his final writings. It's uh, called Thoughts Upon Methodism. He, He made the observation that people who had this initial encounter with Christ, if they were not part of a group, were more likely to fall away than those who were to gather together in a group. He wrote this. He said, in a few months, the far greater part of those who had begun to fear God and work righteousness, but were not united together, grew faint in their minds and fell back into what they were before. Those who weren't gathered with other believers, those who weren't gathered with other Christians in these groups, those who weren't pursuing God in relationship with others fell back into the same way that they were before. It says, meanwhile, the far greater part of those who were thus united together continued striving to enter in at the straight gate and to lay hold on eternal life. He said, those who took serious this calling of Christ to be transformed, this calling of Christ to be his disciple, those who were serious in following Jesus as they were banding together, as they were joining in class meetings, as they were gathering in small groups to build community around God's word, that these people actually experienced the transformation that they were seeking, that these people stayed true to following Christ, and it was evident within their day-to-day lives. So what our Wesleyan heritage reminds us of, what our scripture passage from John reminds us of is 
is one that we are in need of transformation. We, we have this need of, a, of an initial counter with Christ, this initial opportunity where we meet Christ and our will begins to change, where our heart begins to change, where we allow Christ to come in and begin to do uh, that heart surgery within us, to transplant that new heart of flesh that he puts within us. But then, like any other transplant, you need to keep having those, uh, those, those retrovirals, the, those things that help the, the transplant to take. We need to continue to pursue Christ in an ongoing connection of, of transformation with other people. That we might start out distant and disconnected with hearts that are not aligned with God, but through Christ we have a connection with God because God is rich in mercy and he loves us with an everlasting love. That He takes out that heart and then he invites us. He gives us the gift of other people, gives us the gift of being able to be with other people who are on that same journey so that we can continue to pursue him together. God has given us one another so that we might pursue this ongoing transformation, the renewing of our mind that he desires. And so I would invite you, if you're not a part of a group, if you're not connected with other people who are pursuing Christ, to find a group to be a part of. If, if we don't have a group that can fit what you need at the moment, you know, we'll figure out a way to create something. Uh, a life group, a small group, a class meeting, whatever it is, because it is vitally important that we have that sense of connection with others where we allow people to speak into our lives. It's vital as we walk with Christ, as we pursue transformation, is vital in who we are as people who are called Methodists, as those who are living in the Wesleyan way. And so I'd invite you to do that, uh, to pray about it, to see, you know, if you're not sure, say, God, God, who have you placed in my life? Who is around me, Lord, that I need to gather together with? Who have you put in place? What are the, what are the groups? What are the things that you're inviting me to follow? To seek after him, to listen for his voice, he'll give you the direction and the place that you need to go. Uh, let's pray together. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you uh, for this heart-transforming work that you ha- desire to do within us, uh, for this transformational work that you desire to do within our lives, uh, that you long to make us new. And so Lord, we pray that you would uh, go about that. If there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray uh, that you would speak into their heart, that they would know uh, within their soul that you love them and that you are calling them to be made new. And I pray for each of us, Lord, that we might hear uh, Scripture's call to be transformed through the renewing of our mind, to engage in an ongoing process of walking with Jesus so that our lives might be different, so that the world around us might be different, so that we truly might be citizens of heaven and see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.